Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today it's a joy to have with us again Joe Lockhart, former well. <laughs> Joe, I guess we could say former high-placed Democratic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that... Is that fair to say? <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, actually, press secretary, former press secretary. And so we're going to talk to him a little bit about the press and the current press secretary when we come back. Hi, and we're back. This is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And with us again is Joe Lockhart, former press secretary uh, to a different president. <laughs> And uh, and since a, a Democrat, especially so, Joe, I guess, you know, you've been on the show before and I'm, I'm just going to start with the question that I have. Everyone seems to think that uh, Donald Trump has found his muse and that uh, Kayleigh McEnany is a great press secretary. So I'll just ask you, how do you think she's doing? Well, you know, she's she's fulfilling her job assignment. Well, I'll say that but it's not what the traditional press secretary does. I think what Donald Trump and you know his cohort around him, what they want is they want to use these briefings to show the American public how unreasonable the press is and how, what, a, what, a, what fake news it is. Um, and she plays that part well. Uh, the, the problem is um, she just doesn't have any answers to the, the questions that get asked her. So I think, you know, any reasonable person watching or listening comes away saying, I, I, I don't know what she just said. Um, uh, and I, I, come so, away, I come away with that impression when I'm talking to the president, let alone. Yeah, well, that, that's that's true, but a different subject. Yeah. Uh, but there I maintain and look, um, I was there when, you know, I was the little guy in the back who didn't say much uh, and for a while. But um I remember press briefings a little bit differently, and I was always um, raised on the assumption that a press briefing was an instrument by which the administration communicated to the public and the press what their policies were and asked questions and answered questions about policies and the questions of the day. Um, but she has turned it into a critique of the press, and as you said, is, um, has you know used it to show why the press is the uh, enemy of the people, but it's always the, the critique that's most important to the press is the public. If they tune into us, if they read us, if they turn us off, whatever, they're the ones that judge us, not the government. Um, right. right. I, I mean, I think your assessment of what the pre press briefing used to be is exactly right. Um, you know, it's uh, the, the press is the proxy for the American public. You can't fit the American public into the briefing room. So the press has that job. They ask the questions that they think the public is most interested in uh, based on 
um, what they know about the public and based on what they know about what the administration is doing. I would I'd add one element though. It's not sure. ju- it's not just about keeping the public informed. The 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 press secretary and the communications department is also trying to build public support for the public policy the president um, you know is trying to implement. Right. Um, and the, the and that's what's really missing from uh, these briefings. There's no rational arguments for why what the president is doing is wrong. Their argument, their, their, oh, default, their default argument is the president is right and you're not covering it right. Uh, but that doesn't do anything to build support. And again, they have since day one only spoken to the people who voted for them. Well, the, speak, the people who voted for them is not enough to get reelected. They need you know, sort of the swing voters in the middle between the progressives and, and the very conservative. And I think the briefings to the extent that those people are tuning in are turning them off. Yeah, I agree. And, and look, I, for, for those who are listening, in, in case you don't know, I mean, uh, you're no, <laughs> Joseph, you're no stranger to controversy. I mean, you, you were a press secretary for President Bill Clinton. So you know well what it is to be in that briefing room with a contentious group of reporters. It was, um, it was Ronald Reagan's press secretary who once said that, look, you don't tell us how to uh, stage the news and we won't tell you how to report it. But that has gone by the wayside, it seems. Yeah, and again, it's, you know, it, it is an element in the culture wars which is, you know, uh, the Confederate flag, the statues, the violence in the street that they, they, they want to talk about, and the hypocrisy and corruption of the media. Uh, so 40% of the country eats that up. The Fox viewer loves that. Uh, but the rest of the country doesn't. And, you know, I, I don't see how, without changing and expanding their message, they're going to reach the people they need to get to 271 electoral votes. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. How could, how do you, <laughs> good question. I'll save that one for that. But actually what I wanted to uh, ask was in relation to what you're saying, how does what the press secretary does, how does that relate to getting those 270 votes and what yeah. are you doing right? I mean, I'll, I'll speak a little bit from experience, um, because in 1996, the, the way I got into the Clinton orbit was I was the press secretary for the re-election campaign. And, you know, it kind of um, broke down in a very straightforward way, which was the White House talked about everything good the White House did. Um, and, you know, if the record wasn't good, they'd have nothing to talk about, uh, which is what I think a little bit is going on in the right. White House now. The campaign focused on the race and the opponent. So I spent most of my time talking about trying to highlight things that, you know, we thought, you know, Bob Dole would do, which wasn't good for the country. Um, So, you know, I think the White House press secretary, uh, and at the time it was Mike McCurry, and he didn't want to do politics. He just didn't want, he didn't want, he thought it undercut his credibility to be out there you know, banging Bob Dole or, you know, doing right. something overtly political. And he used to say, you know, his answer to a lot of those uh, questions were, talk to Joe, talk to Joe. And I'd be happy to. Now that I remember. I, I, yeah, I, I was, I, I was, you know, being, I wasn't being paid by the taxpayer. I was being paid by the campaign. Um, so 
And I don't think that distinction um, has been recognized by, by these people yet. I mean, the, you know, if you go back to the Rose Garden event that turned, that was really a rally, the, there, yes. Yeah. The, um, uh, the press briefings are, you know, the auxiliary to the rallies. They start with an opening statement, which is, you know, banging on somebody or something. They end with what I call the drop the mic, which yeah. is, you know, she's, she yeah, has clearly, yeah, it's, she's clearly um, deduced or someone has for her that the first word and the last word are the most important. So those are campaign speeches. They are not what the government's doing. It's not what the White House is doing. Um, and, you know, it's, they have, I think, lost, you know, when, when the campaign says the president is great, you know, people take that with a grain of salt. They're like, you're running for something. Right. In the past, when the White House said what is happening here is great, people have taken that much more seriously. And I, they've given that up. Yeah. I, well, and I also wonder, and, and this maybe you can speak to as well since you've been on the other side of that podium, but it's a different room. Now, right now, I think, I think they take advantage of the pandemic because we are social distancing. We are limiting ourselves to 14 people in that briefing room. And I maintain it's much easier, and you would know better than I, so correct me if I'm wrong, it's much easier to control the flow and the ebb of what goes on in that room when you only have to deal with 14 people. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And I, I did a short piece for CNN.com on this, and you, you have to get a little bit into the weeds, but you have to look at who those 14 people are. I, know, I've mentioned that as well. You know, it's, you know, the wire services that are looking for quick bits of, what about oil prices? What about China? What about, not getting into multiple uh, follow-ups that really get uh, to the heart of the story. They just want an instant reaction. Um, you've got the TV people who um, have a, they have a, a, a different way of framing questions. You know, they want something that can get some uh, a visual, a soundbite. Sound yeah. sound and then, you know, you've got a couple of other people, you know, but you don't have, you know, the... They're friends. The, the, what, yeah. Well, the, it's not 14 people, it's 15 people, because they invite someone in from OA and N, which, you know, is, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just the way they work. Um, you know, and I, I'll be honest with you, I really don't have a problem with OANN being there. I have, every president has someone they want to call on that's their favorite. They, I don't mind that. I don't like that they don't follow the rules that the rest of us follow. Yeah. And I do not like that they will ban others while allowing OANN to be there. And I'm one of those that has to fight just to get into that room when they invite. Fine. All seats should be filled at the table. Everyone should have a place at the table to ask any question, pro or against the president, but don't limit it to just the people that you love. Yeah, and I, you know, there's there's a temptation as press secretary to do that, to try to stack the deck, to, um, uh, you know, only do interviews with people you think are friendly. And, you know, I always resisted that, um, you know, for for the reason you might not expect. You know, one was, the, the big reason to me was, you know, the the person you're pissed off on Tuesday, you're pissed off about on Tuesday. It's not the same person on Wednesday. And you know, <laughs> kinda, Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, it kind of it kind of rotates around. And I think you know we used to um, uh, 
during the Clinton administration, when we had a big initiative and we thought the president should go uh, and do a series of interviews, and it was a tough issue, we'd, we'd go to Tim Russert because it sent a message to the rest of the press that if, that if the president could sit in there, you know, defend the policy and, you know, uh, deliver a strong performance, everyone knew there wasn't a tougher interview. Right. Um, it, I, you know, it just, I think it, it doesn't do anything for the president and the White House that they go on Fox twice a week. Mm-hmm. Because the only people who see that is the Fox viewers. They're already for them. Um, and, it, you know, there's nobody that, um, you know, writes stories off those interviews, except when he makes a big mistake. You know, when he says something completely ridiculous. Which um, is often. <laughs> which, which, by the way, he could have done on Twitter. So it's, you know, yeah. it's, so I don't think they get anything out of it. And well, uh, I, I'll, think, go, I'll go yeah. you one further. I, I don't think there's, uh, well, I'll, I'll say present company accepted. <laughs> I don't think there's a Tim Russert in the press uh, pool these days. Well, I would, here's what I'd say. I, I, I think there are people with all of the qualities of Tim Russert and all of the skill that have no interest in sitting in that briefing room uh, because they think it's stupid and a waste of time. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, you know, do you have somebody with his style and his ability? Probably not. But you've got, you know, if you look at the people who do the Sunday shows, they're very smart. Yeah, uh, they get. And, you know, I, I'm always amazed when the administration officials go on. You know, you look at CNN in the middle of the day and you find people like uh, Kate Baldwin and Brianna Keeler and, um, you know, others that, you know, basically crush a, an administration official who comes on who doesn't know what they're talking about. So it's out there. It's just not where we live in this world now where there isn't CTV anymore. Everybody tunes into the same show at the same time, um, but I, I don't subscribe to the fact that the the the, the reporters are weak now. Or no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying that. It's, I, 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 I like. But Tim was one. I agree. Tim was a one of a kind guy. Yeah. He just had a. He had the ability to um, I mean, I set you. Are, yeah, I think there are plenty of people that can. Handle, I just don't think there's a Tim Russell. Yeah, uh, and, I agree and, with that. and you know, well, except for me, but you know. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> But um, I do think that um, he, uh, the point that you make before we go to break, the point that you make that um, I'd like to explore just a little bit here is why does, is it, is it a sign of weakness? Is it a sign of uh, I, I need to deepen my base support? Why do you think he doesn't go to others for it? Is it just simply because he doesn't get it? I mean, he could go to, Jim Acosta. He could go to uh, Jake Tapper. He could go to people who know the issues and are going to give him a hard interview, but he would be better for it and, and doesn't do it. Yeah, I think, you know, all uh, questions about strategy and the Trump administration, and the Trump campaign, eventually go back to the same place, which is Trump's mental makeup. Um, and I think... Um, well, I have plenty of opinions on that. <laughs> yeah, well... But, and I think if you look at the evolution of the staff, the people who understood what the country needed or what you needed to do to have an effective political strategy, they're all gone. They're all, you know, they're the morons that the the president has gotten rid of. And the people he has now are singularly focused on pleasing him. Because if he is pleased, their life is easier. It has nothing to do with running the country. So I think 
it then it goes to you know I say mental makeup as in you know not he's crazy or he's psychotic, but oh, which, maybe, which, which he which he may be, but um, it he needs in every moment to be told he's right. Yeah, that's why he can't say I made a mistake. I was never right. wrong. I you know I I I'm I'm never wrong. Um, even you know I take no responsibility. That, that was that is you know I, I my my friend Kristen Welker asked the question and, and you know he answered that and I sent her a note right away saying you're going to be in a hundred Democratic heads asking that question in, yeah. in the fall. But I think it goes to he 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 doesn't have the confidence to take on the tough interview, and even if he did, he what he really is looking for is reinforcement. He wants somebody to look him in the eye and ask the hard question of how did you get so smart, sir? How did you get so great? And that's what Fox does. Um, that's yeah. what Sean Hannity does and Laura Ingram. Uh, They're and, not news people. No. And they, they reinforce this idea of only I can solve the problem because that's what Trump thinks. He believes that only that he is the smartest person ever born. And if everyone just got out of his way and, you know, stopped giving him data and science, his gut would have the, the answer. Yeah. And that, you know, I think that has dictated the base strategy. Uh, and if you're sitting, you know, if you're a smart political operative, and they have some, and you're sitting, um, you know, wherever they're in Virginia, where they're headquartered, they can't run a campaign that seeks to persuade swing voters because Trump won't let them. So what they're running is the only campaign they can, which is just to find every Trump voter out there and make sure they vote register new voters and you know just cross their fingers that it works do you think it will listen i you know i didn't think hillary could lose so i don't make ironclad predictions i here's here's the route that i would tell you that it could work which is uh, the, the knight foundation did a great study about the tens of millions of americans who are not registered to vote yes and one of the conclusions was it is split right down the middle. I think a lot of people assumed that uh, the people who weren't registered to vote were Democrats. They're not. They, mm -hmm. they are split Republican. They're, I mean, they're big splits in demographics and race and ethnicity, but there, there is a very uh, fertile field uh, for both sides to go out and get new voters. And if that's the, the only way Trump can win is if he massively overperforms there. Do you think he will? I, I don't think so, because I just think the Democrats have enough wind behind them uh, to get their people out and to register new people based on Trump. But no. it's not impossible. That's I, I would, you know, it's uh, yeah, I, way. I would never say it's impossible with Trump because I, who would have picked him the first time? Uh, yeah, but I think I, I think the just just to finish the point, I, I think the um, it is because it's their only strategy and because they will focus only on that and not worry about trying to persuade people, um, you know, the voters are there. Can they get them to the polls? That's, that's the question. Do you think that, um, all right, when you were talking about Kristen Welker asking that question, here's the, uh, my personal experience in asking him questions. I find him combative, but he likes the combat. And he doesn't, he does not listen to the question I'm asking. And so when I'm asking him something about the coronavirus, he blows past me and tells me to sit down. He doesn't hear 
in the question, he likes to be able to point to me and a few others and go, fake media, they're the problem, scream and rant and rave, and never listens to the substance of the question. Do you see that from outside, or is that, is that me? No, I, I, and listen, all, pol all good politicians uh, answer the question they want to be asked. Um, yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, you kind of acknowledge the question and then give the answer you want to give. But I think he gets stumped from time to time. And you're right, he loves the combat. He, th he thinks that him out there talking and jousting with you is good for him, it's not. Right. Uh, but I mean, that was the genius of Kristen's question, you know, which is not, why are you failing? It was, why aren't you taking responsibility? And, you know, he just blurted out, I don't take responsibility. You know, it's, so yes, he likes this, um, but, you know, good, hard, thoughtful questions can, can knock him off um, his agenda. And, you know, he, he generally has- I, I, can, I can testify to that. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I, and, and, and sometimes it's not even that, you're not trying, people think that you're trying to push his buttons, you're really trying to craft, I, I can say for most of us who sit there in the room, your, your goal isn't to piss the guy off, your, your goal is to ask a cogent, relevant question. And we take a great deal of time in crafting those questions. Like you said, it was the way Kristen asked that question. There are many questions that could have been asked where you would get a similar or, or a, a relative response, but it's how you craft the question that puts him, and I think you're right, I think it knocks him off balance. Uh, well, I, I think if you're, you're asking him about to react to some piece of news or data, his default is just say it's not true. You know, all yeah. you know, there's there's a problem getting tests. You know, why is that? His answer is there isn't a problem getting tests. But if you when you get one step deeper into his motivations, how he got there, you know, you know, don't you right. take responsibility for the? That's when um, yeah. you know you get, uh, and it's because he's, you know, the the simple answer to that is he's not nearly as smart as he thinks he is, uh, by a long shot, and. You know, when he goes for a long session with the press, he demonstrates that. Yeah, and that's, you and I have spoken about that before, about how Ed, the longer they go on, and this goes back to uh, McEnany's um, limited interaction with the press with only 14 people in the room. The longer these things go on, the more we follow each other, because we're listening to one another. And it's, as you called it, like a triangulation. After a while, we'll start to pin you down after those questions uh, gather mass and the responses are there. Um, and he doesn't afford you that opportunity. And she doesn't either. That With 14 people in the room and 22-minute briefings, you get well, one question each and that's it. Well, the 22-minute briefing is an important point because traditionally the White House briefings were much longer. Traditionally, there's many more people in the room. And, you know, I, I'm, I am a dinosaur on this. I, I haven't done it in 20 years, but when I was doing it, I didn't get to decide when the briefing was over. Helen Thomas decided when the briefing That's was over. That's right, thank the you, seniors. that's a great point. The senior journalist in the yeah. room just decided when it was, you know, we, they'd, you know, it was getting silly or they'd had enough or, and Helen didn't end them because she felt sorry for me, she didn't. She ended them because at some point you're, you know, you're not, it's the, the returns are de minimis right. uh, for, for staying up there. Um, and, you know, there were no like um, opening statements that read like a speech and there were no closing statements of, 
you know, this is what you should be covering, drop the mic. Um, you know, it just, it was just a very different thing. Yeah, and Helen um, was, was known for that. That was, uh, uh, and I thank you for, really, she's the reason why I named this podcast, Just Ask the Question. That was the first thing she told me when I walked in there. It doesn't matter what the answer is. It doesn't matter if they answer it. It matters that you ask it so that it is on the record and people can't deny that it's been asked. Well, I'll give you one other thing that Alan said to me. Yeah. Which was after like two briefings, she came up and said, you know, how's it going? And I said, it's, I think it's going pretty well. And she said, you, you know, how do you, how do you find the briefings? And I said, no, they're challenging, but I kind of enjoy it. And she looked at me with that look that, you know, from yeah. she said, enjoy it now. It'll be an albatross around your neck soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know what? She wasn't, she wasn't right. I mean, she, that she was wrong on because it never became an albatross. Cause it was, you know, if you're, if you're, built like me with my experience it was the you know sort of best debating society or communications laboratory and i you know i I had trepidation every time walking in that room but i love the challenge of it uh and you know they that's another thing that kind of bugs me about the current people is they don't even try no they're too young to do the easy stuff yeah yeah well, you know, I'll tell you my, my funny Helen story. So I, when I walked in, I, she was the first person I met. She inv- uh, invited me to dinner at her house. She knew my great-grandfather who helped mm-hmm. bring her family into the country. And she knew I was a Karen. She goes, you're a Karen. I said, yes, I am. So the next person I meet is Donaldson, Sam Donaldson. And so Sam tells me, he goes, all right, now you want to look at that front row there. There's probably 300 years of experience in that front row, and you need to listen to those people. And he goes, oh, and by the way, Helen, she's got 200 years of those experience. And she she turned and said something smart to him, I can't remember. And and Sam said, hey, Helen, it's okay to have an unexpressed thought. And Helen looked at Sam and said, Sam, when it comes to you, I have a lot of unexpressed thoughts. (laughs) And and by the way, Sam never had an unexpressed thought. No, no, he still doesn't. I love him for he was yeah, she said I'll teach you what questions to ask and Sam said and I'll teach you how to yell and loud enough to, that they hear him. Yeah. That's uh, and listen, I, it, the whole time they weren't doing briefings and I was agitating uh, to do them and the reason I still am glad they're doing them now is the questions are almost as important as the answers. You're right. I and I want the public to hear them every day not answering the question if they're not going to be willing to answer the question. Well, how they get around that today is not allowing the people in the room to ask the questions. And, you know, you're right. You've got a friend like OANN and they'll burn up some time. And then you're right about the wire services and television. And and, and that's not wrong. That's their job. That's what they do. But the other voices that need to be heard and in that room and when the question is asked, when another reporter can pick up on that and go, wait a minute, that wasn't an answer. What, What is that? Uh, please explain yeah. further. I mean, that, you know, getting into the, 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 the guts of how you do that, that's really, as the press secretary, what you're trying to avoid. It's yeah. really, there's, there's a battle going on there for control of the room. And, you know, listen, there were days where I felt like I did a good job and, you know, sort of kept it on what I wanted to talk about and dampened, you know, what some of the reporters wanted to talk about. But there were definitely days where I was like, I've lost, you know, now every reporter in the room thinks this is an important issue and they have 15 follow-ups and those, you just sort of, you sort of say, okay, you know, I got to take this and, you know, I got to get, I got to tell the truth and I got to make sure 
I can walk, I, you know, still have legs to walk back to my office. <laughs> Did you ever walk away from one of those and the president come up to you and you go, hey, that, that was bad? Well, no, because Clinton didn't watch him. At all? He, he might look at night uh, at the transcripts uh, that they provided. And every once in a while, I'd get a little note on the transcript. Not necessarily negative, um, you know, but sometimes I get a note saying, you know, if you get this question again, include this data, you know, make these two points or that wasn't quite right. Ne never anything nasty, but um, uh, he just, he didn't watch. He's not, he's not like Trump. He, he yeah. worked all day. Yeah. And then he watched TV at night. He watched yeah. C-SPAN at night a lot. And, um, but during the day he was working. Watching well, TV is not working. No, well, hell, the, the Marine Guard is rarely out in front of the, the white, and that, they try to tell us today that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. It means he's not there. Yeah, <laughs> it, means he, it means he's over at the residence. Yeah, it means he's in the residence and he's not in the West Wing. Okay, we're going to take a, a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk to you about uh, going forward, what you think we'll see. We'll be right back. And we're back, uh, Joe. I guess uh, the question I'll ask you at this point in time is, how does it look for the Democrats in the fall? What do you think? Well, Are you going back to the White House yourself? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, I think it looks it looks very positive for the Democrats. Um, you know, the, the the most vulnerable issue for Republicans, and this has been the same for the last couple of cycles, is health care. Um, and, the, you know, the public is not convinced they want that, the Republicans are for health insurance. They just, you know, they're not. And um, now we have a public health crisis. So it's like two terrible things for them colliding. And, you know, add in that the Republican Senate said, you know, almost unanimously that, you know, this guy should stay in office and they're all connected to him. It's just a bad, um, uh, it's a bad forecast for them. The question though is, you know, what happens in the next three months? You know, it's, it doesn't matter where people are today. Well, it matters where they are in November. But, it, but it's hard to see um, no, this year not being a good year for Democrats. The question is how good a year. Um, well, here's the question. Do you, if you were running Joe Biden's campaign, would you debate Donald Trump? It's a really good question. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's an argument for not doing it and not giving him uh, the forum. Because, you know, uh, Trump doesn't view it as a debate. He, use it, he views it as a prize fight. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Biden um, is a, the kind of guy who you can, you know, you can provoke him into a, a prize fight. And Trump, you know, Trump's better at it. Love at it. He would yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I would say that if, you know, Biden can get to the place where he knows not to take the bait and, you know, that he just has to demonstrate that, he understands how government works and uh, the president doesn't. It's, you know, you can make the case, you, you know, you don't want to spend, you know, four weeks talking about why you're chicken to debate. Um, yeah. But, but I think it's, I think it's a real, uh, an open issue for them. There it is. It may be that the, it is just not in their interest to debate. And I, I think they've got a rationale for not debating, which is the, the president lies. And why give him a 60 million, 60 million person uh, forum a lot? And I, you know, I think Joe Biden could get up there and credibly say, 
I'm not debating someone who's a liar because, you know, I, I'm going to tell the truth, but it's going to get distorted because uh, I agree you know, with you can't tell the truth. I'll uh, go you one better. I don't think you should debate him because I've spent the last four years covering Donald Trump and I don't think he's mentally well. And I don't think a sane person should debate an insane person. Yeah. I mean, again, um, uh, it'd make good television, but, um, and a, a lot of people would tune in because, you know, people expect. Well, a roller derby, but. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, if, one of the reasons why, why people tune in to Donald Trump, because they think at some point he's going to self combust and they want to be watching when he does it. I, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, but they're, um, you know, we're, we're saying, I think sort of the same thing. I just think, you know, if, if I was advising, uh, uh, the former vice president and, it was not in his interest to debate. I, I would use that simple answer, which is, you know, he has enough forms to lie. I'm not giving him another one. I think that's an excellent, yeah. uh, excellent advice. Now let's talk about, the, you talked about healthcare. Let's talk a little bit about the coronavirus. I have traveled and I have been outside of the country and we are, not, we're pariahs right now. The rest of the world does not view what we've done to combat the coronavirus is anywhere near appropriate. And the uh, case in point, you know, I, my big thing about doing this uh, podcast was always doing it face to face. So we could have, you know, a, a conversation. I, I feel that's conducive to talking about issues in depth. And so here we are, we're doing it, you know, this way with, you know, through zoom, which is fine, but we haven't gotten to the point we closed down the schools when the, when the rate of infection was, I think, half of what it is today. Right. And now they're talking about reopening them. And every time you talk to Donald Trump, he tells you what a great job he's done with the coronavirus. Long preamble to say, what do you think he's done and how he's done? Yeah, I, I, I look at this a number of different ways. I'll just try to be brief on them. One is, you know, every once in a while you have something that sort of ends the debate of whether government matters. Um, and Republicans implicit in the Republicans argument for small government is government doesn't matter. The individual matters. Uh, and you know, the individuals and the markets, they should, uh, they're, they're responsible for running the country. The Democrats view government as mattering. They view, they view it as a very positive tool to help manage what's, you know, what's going on in the country. So, you know, he can't argue for small government this time because his government is failing. Um, on the, the, the virus itself, I think it exposed the um, fact that you can't bullshit your way through yeah. 140,000 people being dead. You know, you can try. Um, but, you know, so it's been a complete failure on all levels. It's been a failure on the uh, public health and the leadership uh, from uh, uh, the federal government that should be uh, being exercised and is not. You've, you know, you now have left it to the states. Um, and let's be honest, we have some great governors out there and we have some morons who are governors of states. And we're, you know, we're seeing, that's exactly where we're seeing the outbreaks right now. Where well, the morons uh, you, are. You can, you can give, um, you know, you can give some slack to Andrew Cuomo because this, it hit him and we, he didn't know what hit him. Um, you know, Governor Kemp, Governor Abbott, Governor Ducey, they've had four months of watching this and decided not to do anything. Um, so it's a, a total failure, but it's also a total failure 
from the communications point of view. You know, the public doesn't expect you to solve every problem, but they expect you to try. And at least communicate effectively what it is you're trying to do. Right. And one of the ways you demonstrate that you're trying is by saying, I tried this and it didn't work. So we're going to try something else. And we're learning as we go. Trump takes the view always that I already know the answer. Um, and he, so he has undercut himself both on what the federal government hasn't done and undercut himself with the public because the public sees a mess. And it's, this isn't like an issue of the budget where it doesn't impact people right away. I mean, no, no, you don't have to put a mask on for the budget debate. You don't have to not go to a restaurant for four months for the budget debate. You don't have to have your kids home for a budget debate. These are all things that people can feel and touch and have very strong emotions about. And the reason that he's gone down 10 points in job approval is because 10% of the country looks at what they're going through and then they see the president saying, I'm doing a great job. And it disgusts them. Uh, and oh, they're I don't I don't know how he gets it back. I don't know how he convinces those people without taking some responsibility and without doing a better job that he should be reelected. Well, and this leads me to this question over the last couple of weeks, you know, you could talk about uh, the people he's commuting, you know, Roger Stone commuting the sentence. It seems like he's always trying to um, don't look at what's going on in the right hand, look what's going on in the left hand, blue smoke and mirrors. But when you have the president of the United States and his daughter trying to sell beans while people are dying and there are 3 million people, now 3.5 million people, look, that, that, that have tested positive for the coronavirus, look at it this way. One out of every 100 people in the U.S. has already tested positive for the coronavirus. Many of us already know someone that has died and soon we will know many that have died. And there seems to be no way of controlling it and he's selling me beans. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think it goes back to, you know, what I'm, um, I think, charitably calling his mental makeup. He doesn't care about solving the problem. He doesn't care uh, about what he wants is he wants to talk. He wants people to tell him he's great. He, want, he needs Sean Hannity with him. He needs Laura Ingram with him. He needs, you know, the, the, the doofuses on Fox and Friends <laughs> uh, with them and you know Rush Limbaugh and these people who are who know very little but have you know have a captive audience and to, I think Trump has this ability to to compartmentalize information and this all of the negative stuff he just doesn't hear so when he goes out there and just lies ball face it's because he believes it yeah you know, somebody has somebody has told him something and it fits his narrative and it just becomes fact. And it, you know, and it's not just like he's telling a story. Someone told him about this hydrochloroquine drug and we went out and bought 70 million doses of it. You yeah. Know? And it doesn't, it doesn't do any good and it might even do harm, but that's, that's how we're going. That's how he's governing the country. He's governing it by something Rush said or something he saw on Fox or something some big fundraiser called him and said, or, something his kids told him, which, you know, is the, the most dangerous. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's anti-expertise, it's anti-science, um, it's anti-rigorous work, you know, that goes into developing governmental policies. Uh, it's easy for him and it's gratifying for him. 
and he gets off on it. Uh, well, that's, that you paint a very rosy picture, Joe. <laughs> but so I, it's it's I'll, I'll, I'm going to anticipate a question of you know, well, if you were uh, Trump's campaign manager, what would you do? Here's the problem. Hey, that's a good I'm, question. I'll ask it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there are there are only two campaigns. You know, it's everybody talks about how smart campaign offers. Our campaign offers aren't that smart. You run one of two campaigns. You run a campaign on who you are and what your record is and the results you've gotten, um, yes. which Ronald Reagan ran that campaign in 1984. Uh, Bill Clinton ran that campaign in 1996. The, here's the second one. You run a campaign that's not about you. You make the campaign a referendum on the other guy. Like you, you just kind of implicitly tell the public, I may not be perfect, but that guy's a disaster. George Bush, 1988, made yeah. Michael Dukakis into a pariah when, and because he didn't fight back, it worked like a charm. Um, I think when he got in that tank, that, that's what killed him. Oh no, he was, he killed himself by, you know, the Boston Harbor stuff and the flag that all happened in August. Uh, but that's, that's a much longer story. Yeah, that, that is. So, but there's a, they, the Trump campaign can't run the second campaign because the, yeah. second, the second campaign means that he can't make it about him. He can't, you know, you never saw, you know, uh, George Bush in 1988 talking about hey, how great Ronald Reagan was or, you know, this part of the record. Ever. He was always talking about Dukakis. Trump has to be talking about himself. So if there are, if I'm right, that there are two types of campaigns, he, can um, one. he can't run either. Yeah. Um, and, and I think what they're trying uh, to do is to run this second one, you know, to, to make it about Biden. And you see the campaign doing it, but Trump won't play because he can't stop talking about himself. Well, I've noticed that in his rally on the, on the you know, Tuesday, his rally yeah. in, in the Rose Garden that I had to sit through. And then he wouldn't even answer a question when I shouted at him, when are you going to stop lying to people about, yeah. you know, your results of the, you know, trying to stop the coronavirus? He was having none of that. But I've noticed that, in, to your point, maybe this is to your point, he, ha he has labels and catchphrases like uh, the destructions of the suburbs, law and order, Yes. Uh, the radical left, uh, and uh, et cetera, and so on. And he uses these, I recognize the catchphrases. But Tuesday, he was constructing a narrative. He hadn't read all of his notes. He was reading through them. He, and he goes, oh, here's something I didn't even notice, they told me, and blah, blah, blah. And he may be incoherent, but he'll hit those catchphrases, and that, those are the dog whistles for his supporters. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's what the combination of continually hitting those catchphrases or the dog whistles, whatever, for his supporters and Hillary Clinton's unpopularity. And, you know, I think some malpractice in the press uh, in 2016. Well, let him I have a lot answer for there. Yeah. And again, a whole other subject. But he can't do that this time because the 40 percent that support him, they'll most of them will turn out and he can't speak to the other people without undermining his pitch to the 40% because his whole pitch for four years has been, I'm different. I don't play by their rules. I play by my rules and I, I make it up as I go along and you guys are with me. I hear you. And if he starts like trying to speak to women in the suburbs in language that women in the suburbs will listen to, 
you know, I think in Trump's mind, he worries that all of the people who love him, you know, and, 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 and retweet his stuff and like him and all that stuff, that they, that, you know, they may be at risk. Because, you know, you don't, it's almost, you know, his attacks on Biden are half-hearted. They're uh, horrid. His, his campaign goes after Biden every day in, in very nasty terms. But Trump is like reading. I mean, I love when Trump uh, reads a speech that he hasn't read before. Yeah. He'll, read a, he'll read a sentence and then he'll realize what it means. So he'll say it again. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, you know, 42% of Americans, you know, have gotten a pay raise. Oh, 40, you know, 42%, that's a big, you that's know. That's a big number. Yeah, it's because he has just read it for the first time. Yeah. He doesn't know. <laughs> I've noticed that too. I've noticed that in many of his speeches. But, you he, know, I, I, I worked for a guy who. Well, Bill Clinton was a policy wonk. Well, and he used to take speeches and write all over them and no one could read it but him. Yeah. But I remember the first uh, address to the nation he gave. Um, and I was standing in the Oval Office, and the first half of the speech was put in the teleprompter, but not the second half, because up until about 10 seconds before he went, he was still rewriting the second half. <laughs> so as, you know, he, he handed it over, you know, and said, my fellow Americans, I mean, literally, like, handed my fellow Americans, and the teleprompter guy, you know, who, like, you know, probably aged 30 years in Bill Clinton's <laughs> age, had to basically at a certain point like pull in the second half. I don't know how they did it. I just, but it went seamlessly. And you know, you remember he yeah. he had the famous you know address to Congress where they loaded the wrong speech. Yes, and he gave the real speech without any text. Without a without a blink. Without missing a word. You know, I'm so sure one of the mo first times I I met him as an adult, and and I had met him as, as a as a teen, but when I in '92 when he was running. And it was right before he went, him and Hillary went on 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. And he had, he was nowhere in the polls. And he, it was Super Tuesday and I was down in Texas and he showed up at La Vida Assembly Hall and he came out and I was the only reporter there with, with a camera talking to him. So I started asking him some questions and uh, Hillary had <clears throat> knew my uncle, they had worked on uh, Bill Clinton and my uncle had worked on education issues in Arkansas and Kentucky together mm -hmm. <clears throat> when he was um, um, there and, and uh, my uncle was the speaker or uh, Senate Majority Leader. So they, there was a, you know, we had known each other peripherally. Yeah. But as we start talking and I'm asking him questions, he says, well, let me tell you about the Edwards Aquifer, which is the, the source for, it's the groundwater source for San Antonio. And he knew more about the Edwards Aquifer than the people who sat on the Edwards Aquifer board. Of course and he did. I was, I was like, you're not, you're, you're not running for city council. You're running for president. What he I, didn't, so, he didn't view it that way. Yeah, he yeah. viewed it as he was running. He wanted to get all the city councils. Yeah. He, and he knew all the precincts. And he, yeah. you know, it's, well, and he knew the issues. And yeah. I mean, he was, I, I was impressed that he knew that much about the issue. And he goes, it's about this issue. Let me tell you about this issue. And, yeah. and he did. I'll tell you about the Edwards Aquifer. I mean, he, you know, he, I was, uh, but I, I walk, I try to ask Donald Trump a very simple question about how do you justify your numbers saying there's a, there's a greater risk at the border when there's fewer people being arrested and there's fewer incursions. How do you say there's more?
he can't answer a very simple question. Well, but he, he, he both doesn't know and doesn't care. And doesn't, oh God, yes. You, you nailed that one right. You know, he, know it, it just, it's, it's the, you know, he, he wants to leave the governing to others. He wants the love <laughs> circumstance. He, he just he, wants to wear the hat. <laughs> he, wants, he wants everyone to tell him that not only is he wearing the hat, but the hat looks good on him. Yeah. Oh, God. We could go. There's, there's an opening line. Well, we're going to take a break. And we'll be right back. Hi, and we're back. And we're, uh, we're just about done for the afternoon. But, but Joe, I have to ask you this question. You've been in the briefing room. You've worked with the press in five minutes. <laughs> Let's solve the problems of the press. What do you think needs to be done? There's a lot of truth to, you know, my former boss, Mike McCurry's uh, philosophy on life. Mike is the guy who invited the cameras in. Yeah. And, and will tell <laughs> he you. regrets that. <laughs> yes, he'll tell you willingly that it's like the biggest mistake he ever made. You know, I think the briefings have become theater. Um, they were heading in that direction when I was there. Obviously not all the way in that direction because, you know, it's, I still had to be on camera. I didn't have a, a you know, a good looking body double. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it has evolved that way so that, you know, most of, not most of, a lot of the serious reporters pay no attention to it. They just work their sources, you know, the, the briefing just happens. So, you know, maybe it's, maybe you fix it by taking the cameras out of there and you take the performance part out of there and it becomes, you know, and, you know, uh, I believe the TV is a very important thing. And so maybe the answer is that you don't, you keep the briefing the way it is, but you go back to doing a very robust, what we, you know, what we call the gaggle, you know, in the morning yes. in the security office. I missed those. You went back and forth for 15 minutes and those were, those were incredibly useful for both sides. The, the press would get a sense of what we were doing that day so they could start planning. Um, but they were incredibly useful for us at the White House because it gave us a sense of what the press was going to do that day, what their agenda was. And there are some days that, you know, I'd look at what we were doing and I'd factor that into the questions we're guessing. And I'd march over to the chief of staff's office or the Oval Office and say, hey, we got to call an audible here. Because when it, no matter what we say, that's not the story today. And we want to be in the story. Uh, and then, and we, we would do that. Um, and we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have that interaction, that we, if we weren't sharing uh, information. And that stuff doesn't really happen anymore. Um, the, this is not solving the press, um, but I'll, I'll make two other points. Um, the first about the administration. Um, you know, they, they just lie with ease. Uh, and, you know, there's always, you know, one person in the administration who takes liberties and, you know, the reporters pretty quickly find out, you know, who that is right. and they'll use them less. Although sometimes they use them for a quote that, you know, sort of backs up their own thesis, yeah. uh, which, which is not great. But, you know, the, the, the lying with ease um, is a problem. The second is, I think, um, in the, the print world, and even in the TV world and radio world, we've got to get away from anonymous sources being the, you know, you know, it's, uh, someone said to me once, and I think it's right, that we, in Washington, we've gotten to the point where an anonymous source is more powerful than an on-the-record source, because an anonymous source seems like you know a secret, like someone told you, don't right. put my name on this. And 
you know, we just, the, the contortions people go with, you know, like this White House says the most obvious things, but says he can't put my name on it because they're afraid the president's going to change his mind and, you know, that's sort of. Problem. That, I don't think yeah. that's the press's problem. I mean, sometimes they say stuff on background, you know, and there's a difference between, you know, a confidential source and on background. But they'll say stuff on background because they, like you said, there's, they, they, in any other administration, you would get out in front, you could talk to the press secretary and the press secretary could say, yes, this is what I'm saying and you attribute it to me. And, and you can't do that in this administration. Every, yeah, they say, I every think... question I ask them, it's either this is off the record or for background only. Everything. What time is, the, what time is lunch? Uh, off the record? Two o'clock. Well, you could tell me that on the record. No, no, no. I don't want to get ahead of the president. But I think, uh, I think the press enables that in some way by continually, you know, continuing to allow these people to say what they say, you know, and I think if, if there was one thing I could, you know, that I would suggest, and listen, there are a hundred things that government could do better and to be more transparent and more responsive. So I'm not, this isn't, this isn't like a killing, any attack the press, but I think, you know, if people got stricter on uh, forcing people on the record or their point doesn't get in the story. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I can remember having a conversation with one of the AP reporters, Ron Fournier, who, um, you know, is, you know, uh, is, you know, back home in Detroit now. But a couple of times I'd call him and say, you know, hey, Ron, this, I got a good story for you. And I'd say, let me give you a background quote. He says, I'm not going to print that story. And I'm like, why? And he says, you got to be on the record. I don't, you know, I'll take a background quote to try to explain something that someone's told me. But if you're if you're going and saying the Republicans on the Hill are doing that, you got to put your name on it, right. uh, which forced me into a decision, which is I either don't get the story written or I don't get my strong points in or I have to go back and decide I'm going to do that on the record. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, unless it, most of the stuff that gets done that's dishonest is on background. Yeah, that's uh, true. and on the record forces it actually forces both sides to be honest. I mean, I, this is not going to come as a newsflash to you, but there are some reporters who are not honest, just like there's some elected officials who are not honest. Um, and I think that's the one thing that I'd say. You know, if if the press tightened up on that, it would force some discipline uh, among government officials, and I think would be better. I don't have any reason to believe they will, because I think in some ways. Um, you know, the, the late, the newest generation of reporters like the anonymous sources. And, you know, it's, I don't. it's it gives them, well, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to be sweeping here. I think there is a, um, a particular uh, uh, attraction right now among reporters to talk about process and talk about behind the scenes at the expense of here's what happened. Um, and, background quotes work better for the, the uh, first two and not, you know, the third. So I think there's, everybody's got to trade off a little bit to make it better. It can be done. I, you know, I doubt that it will. I, I like that idea. I, I try to limit my use of, uh, in this administration, my use uh, for anonymous or background sources to um, characterizations of their interactions with the president. Cause they, if they say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm Joe Lockhart and the president was a dick. <laughs> they'll be fired the next day. Yeah. Um, but it, but then 
for this, I don't like the process stories too much as much as I want to know what's, it, what I feel we've gotten away from is talking about policy and part of that and, and what the government is actually doing. And part of that is because we get so swept up in this, in the gaslighting that goes on, you know, with, you know, Trump saying something outlandish and yeah. when we chase him down his rabbit hole then we forget about Russian bounty and we forget about yeah. climate change and we forget about deregulation and that the robber barons are running free and that, you know, they're paying less taxes, we're paying more. All of that gets lost in the wayside. And it's hard to actually have a conversation with someone about the issues that matter because they're so busy telling, well, did you hear that outlandish thing that, that Trump said? And yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the easy stuff to do. That's yeah. the, you know, you just, because you can call two Democrats on the Hill who will say it's outrageous and your story's done. I yeah. think the, you know, the, the other piece of this is, you know, and I, you know, listen, I think, the, the major newspapers have, have tried very hard to do this. I agree. Um, well, and, and um, but what they've defaulted to now is this thing, and this is new, which is we talked to 73 sources, none of whom would put their name on it. And I think if you're in the public, you don't believe it. You yeah. know, if you're not a diehard partisan, you think, well, if it was true, someone would put their name on it. Um, and I think that's, you know, that would strengthen of reporting that would strengthen credibility. Um, and I would like to know who anonymous was the anonymous letter. Yeah, well, I, we'll know that at some point, but I don't know when. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully we're both still breathing air when it happens. Yes. <laughs> well, listen, Joe, I appreciate your time. I, I, I love this conversation. I'd love to continue it. You know, hopefully we can meet together, have a coffee somewhere when. Uh, yeah. Well, let's let's do it again before election day. You, I, yes, we will. I want to talk to you way before election day. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. The name okay. of the show is Just Ask the Question, and our host, or, well, I'm still your host. Our guest today was Joe Walker, former press secretary for Bill Clinton, and it was an absolute pleasure having you, Joe. We'll see you again. It was fun. Thanks, Brian.